Welcome to the BJSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Celeste Gertzimer about women's football medicine in 2019. Dr. Gertzimer is a sports medicine physician at Aspatar, Qatar's orthopedic and sports medicine hospital. She has extensive experience working alongside FIFA in various World Cups and was the first ever female team physician at the FIFA World Cup back in 2010. She has also worked as the national team doctor for New Zealand at the Olympic and Commonwealth Games. Dr. Gertzimer, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be part of this uh, conversation. You really do have the dream career that many within our community aspire to. You are currently working as the FIFA General Medical Officer at the Women's World Cup in France. Can you start by sharing with our listeners a bit about what your current role at the World Cup involves? Yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, I have to say I, I recognize that I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to, to do this job. Um, uh, and I'm very grateful, you know, to be, to be given these opportunities. Uh, it is the pinnacle of a sports medicine career, I guess, for me at least. Um, to give you an idea of uh, what we do at the World Cup, as the general medical officer, I'm responsible for ensuring the medical services are in place in the World Cup. And um, this is the one side of the job, and the second side of the job is the doping control. So in terms of the medical services, FIFA have a, has a very specific way of organizing medical services at uh, any World Cup, and it's consistent across uh, the male and the female uh, world championships, also age groups and um, senior championships. So you have a counterpart in the local organizing committee, and they have to work with you, and they are actually the ones who do most of the work because they have been putting these things in place months in advance. And when you get here, it's just your job to make sure that everything's working, that things are done the way that FIFA like it to be done. Uh, we do some training on the field of play uh, for the field of play teams on how to evacuate somebody from, from the pitch. This is also done in a very specific way, so it's consistent across all matches and across all um, tournaments. As far as the doping control is concerned, we do doping control at the end of every match and we usually test four players, so two per team. And in this tournament, we're doing urine and blood testing, so we're working also on the, bio, the athlete biological passport. So it's actually, it's a very exciting job. I'm also the venue medical officer for Paris specifically. So uh, my venue is Paris and then we have seven other uh, venue medical officers across France at the different venues. You've also worked as a venue medical officer at the Men's World Cup in Russia last year. Do you find any differences in the medical requirements of male versus female footballers at these tournaments? The initial answer is no. So, um, you know, as I've, as I've just said, it's the, whether it's male or female tournaments, the requirements are exactly the same. So what you put in place and uh, the things that you check have to be exactly the same. And that is to make sure there's a high standard of medical care. And also, when you're on the pitch, uh, we actually, as VMOs, we sit on the sideline. So um, we are there to assist the team physicians. Uh, and now a new introduction in this World Cup is that we have a tablet um, similar to the VAR, which means that we can go back and look at a mechanism of injury, for example. And if the team physician is not sure if their player might have suffered a concussion, for example, we can advise them and say, look, you know, this looked like a pretty bad mechanism of injury or... The player just didn't look right, you know, um, after they tried to get back. And so in that way, we can really assist them. So when it comes to those things, the immediate management of male and female athletes is really no different. It's the same. 
of course, we have to know that there are some injuries where women are at higher risk of getting that injury, or as in the case of concussion, if they do get concussion, it tends to be worse. So already in the beginning, we can see that we, we might have to consider treating them differently. Um, and, you know, maybe the advice that you would give to the team physician might be slightly changed because you're dealing with a female athlete rather than a male athlete. But really, the, the big differences between the men and the, and the women in terms of uh, football injuries is trying to prevent the injury. So we know, for example, women are far more likely to have ACL ruptures, two to three times as likely as men. Now, you're not going to treat that differently when they come off the pitch, but you might treat it differently in terms of prevention. I think there's a lot to be done before they get to the tournament. Once they're in the tournament, the management is more or less the same. But there are significant gaps in how we prevent injuries and perhaps in how we eventually treat them in the long run. Uh, and there are big gaps in football, women's football medicine as far as this is concerned. What exactly do you mean by gaps in women's football medicine? I mean that there is a significant underrepresentation of women in football medicine research. So I looked at articles that had been published in the three leading sports medicine journals in the world. And I specifically wanted to see a look at original research articles published in the last 12 months. So that gives us an idea of what's happening right now. If you do a systematic review, obviously you're looking at what's been happening in the past. So I wanted to have a current idea. And it was absolutely astonishing. I wanted to see how many of these original articles included women in their research. And when they included women, how many of them did a subgroup analysis? Because, of course, it doesn't help if you include women, but you don't look at whether there are differences between men and women. And when it, unfortunately, when it comes to the BJSM, which is the leading sports medicine journal, only 14% of football research articles fulfilled those criteria. For the American Journal of Sports Medicine, the number was 25%. And for the journal Sports Medicine, the third one, there was not a single football research article that included women with a subgroup analysis. So this means that we don't know what's happening in football medicine for when it comes to women. There's no research being done there. We, everything we know about how to treat injuries on the pitch, off the pitch, how to prevent injuries, we are basically basing that on what we know in male footballers. That's not really scientific. Do you think that male and female footballers are really that different and that their injuries need to be studied separately? So there are, for me, there are two answers to this question. The first answer is what we know right now, and that is we don't know <laughs> for the reasons I've just explained. So there are so few studies comparing male and female footballers that we cannot actually answer this question at this stage. And this is already the most important reason why this research has to be done. The second question is that it is likely that the differences are big enough that you can't just extrapolate research done in male footballers to female footballers. And the reason I'm saying that is that the little bit of research that we have done so far already seems to indicate that there are significant differences. So, for example, if you look at the data from FIFA competitions over the last few years, the data that's, that's published, it will tell you that the injury rate between men and women are the same. But if you dig a little bit deeper and you look at the types of injuries they get, it's very different. And that doesn't get published so, so commonly. 
we also know that there are some research, there's very good research has been done in ACL rupture, for example, and definitely the injuries there are different. Same with concussion. And um, we also know that women are suffering far less hamstring and groin injuries than men do. But what, what's interesting for me is if a woman then suffers from a hamstring injury, we don't actually know if we should be treating them the same way as we treat the men and whether they have the same prognosis as the men because the studies that look at hamstring injuries in football don't include women. So it may be that there are actually significant differences. But the other thing to think about as well is that people happily accept that there are differences in performance between men and women because of the physiological differences we have. And yet it's more difficult to convince them that there might be diff differences in injury management. But the physiology is still the same. You know, the physiology is still different between men and women. It's, so I think it's likely that there may be differences. Based on your experience and research, what do you think may be the underlying reasons for some of these differences you've been talking about? Is it the type of game they play? Is it the physicality or the contact? Or do you think it might be something else? Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, I'm sure we can speculate a lot about this. And I have to point out that I am not, I'm a clinician. I am much more than a researcher. But I've read quite a lot about this because I find it very interesting. And one of the most fascinating things I've read about uh, the differences between men and women is the genetics. The fact is that men and women are genetically very different. Since we've been able to map the human genome, we've been able to establish that the genetic, genetic differences between men and women are about as big as the genetic differences between men and chimpanzees, male, that is. So it turns out that the, the differences in both groups are about 1% to 4%. Now, 1% to 4% doesn't sound like an awful lot, but this is enormous if you consider that the genetic differences in all the many human males we know are no more than 0.1%. So that's quite big. And what for me is interesting is that the key thing here is that it's not just sexual differences. You know, we've, in the past, if people said there's the differences between men and women, we always think about the sexual organs. And of course, it's true that the sexual organs are very different. But the fact is that every cell in the human body has a sex. And they have differences in gene expression because of that sex. There are many examples of how male and female non-sexual organ cells differ. For example, female liver cells have more of the CYP3A enzyme. This is an enzyme that metabolizes many of the drugs we know today. So this means that the ideal dosage requirements for most medications for men and women may actually be quite different. And in fact, in 2013, the FDA, 20 years after it first approved the drug Zolpidem, recommended a lower dose for women because of the excessive side effects experienced by them. And we're talking here about really bad side effects like major car crashes because women were so drowsy the following day after taking the, the medication. We also know female lung cells have a higher concentration of an enzyme CYP1A1. This enzyme is involved in the metabolism of cigarette smoke, and it has been associated with early onset lung cancer. And if you look at the statistics, we find that women who smoke tend to have earlier lung cancer than men who smoke. In the same way, male neural cells, they display a dopamine uptake rate which is half that of female neurons. And this might explain why men are more prone to Parkinsonism than women. And this has got nothing to do with the sexual organs. This is just different cells in the body with different genetic expression because of the actual sex of the cell. 
So you can see it's becoming more and more obvious that extrapolating medical research done in male subjects to female subjects may not actually have any external validity. It's about as unscientific as it gets if you're trying to prove that or if you're trying to do that until at least we've proven that we're either all the same or not. But for the moment, we can't say that. And if we move out of the lab and onto the pitch, do you really think the women's game is so different? The women's game is definitely different. And I'm not a technical expert, but uh, for sure, if you look at how women play and how men play football, the game is definitely different. Men are more aggressive, they're faster. People, many people would argue that they are more accurate in passing, they have uh, better ball skills, whereas women tend to be uh, much better team players and they, have, they, play, they just play a different tactical game. Having said that, things are changing. The women's game is definitely becoming more aggressive, faster, and you can see it if you look at some of the teams playing in this World Cup. I can see the differences since the first female World Cup I was involved with was 2011, and from then until now, there's actually huge differences. But I think it's more than just that. I think it's, uh, as I said, it's, it's underlying differences. It's not just in the way that people play. How do you propose we go about addressing the gaps in recognition and research that you've been highlighting? I think we all have a role to play. So as I said, I'm a clinician. I see patients. And for me, the first step as a clinician would be to recognize that the player that sits in front of you with a particular problem is an individual. I mean, we have to do that in any way, right? Um, but when it comes to men and women already, to recognize the fact that this is not a male footballer sitting in front of you. It's a female footballer and that her needs might be different from the male footballer. And yes, we're limited in what research we can look at if we want to know how to treat her particular injury. But at least we have to recognize that that research doesn't have such great external validity. This is the first thing is to just be aware of the fact that that the situation exists. The second thing would be for the, the researchers out there to consider including women in their research projects. And I, I fully appreciate that this is not easy. It's not, it's, it's not just a matter of saying we need to do it and then it happens. I mean, it affects the numbers. Uh, it's not so easy to do research in women for a variety of reasons. And in fact, in the past, many years ago, people deliberately excluded women from research because they were concerned that the hormonal milieu would affect their outcomes. I mean, that in itself <laughs> says a lot about how valid that research then would be in women, doesn't it? But just to be, to really make an effort to include women, and it's not just because it's the right thing to do, it's also because there's actually a fantastic opportunity here. If you think about it, all the good research that's been done in male football can now be repeated in, in women's football. And we have the opportunity to maybe do it better because we understand the pitfalls and we know what the limitations of certain studies are. So, you know, if you have an interest in a particular field and you now include women, you might be able to come up with something even better than you did last time. I think the other thing that also needs to be addressed is that many researchers that I've spoken to have said that they find it difficult to publish research in women. So this is, there seems to be a little bit of a bias, not just in terms of doing the research, but also getting it published. So when I say we all have a responsibility here, this includes the editors of journals. Looking ahead to the future, what do you hope to achieve by promoting more gender equality in football medicine research? I think in the end, 
in this era of more and more personalized medicine, I think our medium-term goal should be to design injury prevention and treatment programs that are gender-specific. And it has to be based on good quality research rather than just adopting protocols from male football medicine. If the research in the end proves that there are no differences between the sexes, then that's fantastic. And then we know that whatever we decide or however we treat our patient is based on the correct data rather than borrowing something from men because we don't have any data on women. If it proves to be different, then of course this, this call to action on gender equality would be justified, right? And in the long term, I'm hoping we'd get to the point where we can be far more specific than just sex and we, we'd be able to provide every athlete with a truly personalized program based on their individual genetic makeup. Of course, that's probably still a long way off. But can you imagine the sports medicine community at that point in the future, looking back at where we are today, wondering how we could ever have thought that two groups of people with a 1% to 4% genetic gap between them could be treated the same way? So I believe this process is ine inevitable. This is progress, and progress can't be stopped. The question for us is whether we want to be part of that progress or whether we're going to be in the, in the group that got left behind. For me, this is a truly exciting time to be part of the global football community because we're now reaching for things that was previously unthinkable. I was recently blown away by Germany's Women's World Cup advertisement in which the players announce that they play for a nation that doesn't even know their names. And I couldn't help but be reminded of your story about Pele in a skirt, which I was hoping you could leave our listeners with today. It's very sad. I mean, the first thing I should say is things are definitely improving. I can see in this World Cup there's a, a huge interest in women's football. Um, and I've noticed recently the BBC has made a statement specifically saying they are promoting women, female athletes, not just footballers, but female athletes in general. So there's definitely a groundswell of change. But you are correct. There are many of these very high-level athletes who just don't have the same publicity as their male counterparts. And for me, the, the woman that personifies this is Marta. You know, she was a, a young girl. She learned to play football in the back streets of Brazil at a time shortly after uh, women's football was unbanned in Brazil. And as we know, it was banned in the UK for 50 years as well. Um, and she's, if you follow her story, she was an incredible, she is an incredible player. Um, people recognize her as being exceptional, and yet it's been a struggle all her life. You know, she's the club where she played in Brazil, which is the same club that Neymar played at. The women's team was disbanded because they needed to be able to afford the salary of the male player, salaries of the male players. After she'd been in the World Cup, she had to change clubs because there was just not enough money to just. Uh, to, service the the women's team it's just been a struggle for her all her life and if she wasn't a girl she probably would have been as big a name as Pele and for me what I would like to see in the end is that if any of us have a child that has that kind of potential and ability we should never have to say if only she was a boy this is not fair before we let you go, if our listeners would like to find out more about yourself or your work, where should they go? Well, I currently work at Aspetar Hospital in Doha in Qatar, 
and um, it's easy to contact me through there. Although I have to warn you that I have a twin sister, so you have to make who does the same job as me. So you have to make sure that you contact the right person. Dr. Giritsumar, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of your time in Paris. Thank you very much. I certainly will. All the best to you as well. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Dr. Celeste Giritsumar. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect through our social media channels. You can listen to a new, clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.